Today's episode is brought to you by Amazon Collectibles. Did you know that Amazon sells collectibles, memorabilia, and fine art? They do. Amazon has over 2 million listings for collectibles and memorabilia for non-collectors, gifters, and serious collectors and hobbyists looking to build their collection and find unique slash rare collectibles. The store focuses on PSA and CGC grading, an authenticated selection of comic books, photos, prints, posters, and more across various franchise shows and movies. They really do have a lot of cool stuff. You get free shipping on select items. Uh, just go to Amazon.com Nerdist. And uh, you might want to check out, for example, uh, the first comic featuring Scott Lang as Ant-Man. That's on there. Uh, you just search for Ant-Man, Scott Lang, but go to Amazon.com Nerdist and then poke around and uh, see what you can find out. Basically, anytime you use Amazon, do it through Amazon.com slash Nerdist, and it helps out uh, all of uh, the podcasts you love. Thanks to Amazon, not just for sponsoring the show, but for allowing me to not have to leave my house to go shopping. Now entering... Nerdist.com. Hi, do you love TV like I love TV? Of course you do. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this. Were you completely hooked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Lost and Friends? Maybe Bones? And do you love, like, Parks and Recreation, The Good Place, Daredevil, The Defenders, all that Marvel stuff? Yeah, you do. And I do too. So... This Sunday, November 6th, please join me at Largo at the Coronet to celebrate 300 episodes of the Writers Panel. Uh, if you've been enjoying the show, if you've been listening to the show, this is a great way to help support the show. Uh, who's going to be there? Carlton Cuse, Damon Lindelof, Reunited, Mike Shore, creator of Parks and Rec uh, and The Good Place, Marta Kaufman, creator of Friends, Hart Hansen, creator of Bones. Folks from Buffy like Jane Espenson and David Fury and Doug Petrie and more. Liz Tiglar, who's running Casual. Bridget Carpenter, who ran 11-22-63. Andrew Miller, co-creator of Secret Circle, and he has cool stuff going on. They all have cool stuff going on. You should come and hear about it. That's all we're going to talk about. Um, it should be a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's an amazing group of people we have amassed, sort of the tastemakers from the past 15 years of television, 20 years maybe. So when I started doing this show, I never thought that it would last this long. I never thought I would stick with it this long, but I've loved having these conversations, and I'm always flattered that anyone besides me is interested in this. Um, so thank you for listening, and again, if you enjoy the show, this is a great way for you to come support the show. Uh, to get tickets, go to largo-la.com. Um, or follow me on Twitter. I, I'm tweeting the link at Ben Blacker, or go to writerspanel.tumblr.com, uh, or like us on Facebook. The best thing to do is go to largo-la.com, get tickets for this Sunday, November 6th, uh, 8 p.m., the 300th episode of the Writers Panel. 300! Hooey.
Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. Uh, And follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. Please welcome John Green. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's, uh, it's my pleasure and also my obligation because my brother made me. <laughs> Is this... Let me ask you this, seriously. Now, I talk to a lot of television people, and then when I go and I talk to feature film people, they're uh, solitary weirdos. Now, novelists, <laughs> I suspect, are even more solitary weirdos. Is that what you are? Yeah, probably. I mean, I do like spending a lot of time by myself. I don't... <laughs> Like, I, I, I very rarely think, I wish I were socializing right now. <laughs> Given your druthers, would you be at a convention like this? Well, this is really fun for me. This is a, but this is a very specific uh, <laughs> thing, you know, where I feel like I'm going to be with my people, you know, so it's not as scary. But no, I, I, I really enjoy meeting readers, and I really love talking about books, I also really, I mean, you know, basically both of my jobs, writing and making videos, involve a lot of, you know, time alone in your house. Uh, and so I, I must have chosen that work for a reason. I, I'm curious, I mean, we, we know you best uh, from these young adult novels. What kind of a teenager were you? Not a good one. <laughs> Who was a good teenager, though? Yeah, but I was exceptionally bad, both at being a teenager and, like, in the larger sense of being naughty. Um, really? Yeah, oh yeah. In what way? Oh, in all of the major ways. In the talk back to your teacher's way, in the smoke cigarettes way, in the drink too much way. I think... Um, you know, I was very self-destructive. Like, I felt this deep urge to, you know, destroy something inside of me. There's a great line in, in Sylvia Plath um, in The Bell Jar where she talks about wanting to, to, to hurt something and looking at her veins and understanding that her veins weren't the thing that she wanted to hurt but not being able to understand quite what it was. And I guess I felt like that for much of my adolescence. And Can I, can I, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt you. No, that's fine. I like Over that. and over because I want to dig deep on some of these things. Have you explored through therapy, through writing, through your own thoughts, where this destruction, this self-destruction came from? We're going to get real deep real fast, apparently. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is... I think some of it is that I was trying to deal with... um, I have have obsessive-compulsive disorder, so I think sometimes, you know, the compulsions that people develop to deal with their OCD... um, 
are sometimes destructive or, or sometimes get in the way of leading the life that you want to live. And so I think that was part of it. Part of it, I think, is probably brain wiring. But then I also think that part of it is adolescence. I think a lot of teenagers... Um, you know, you just, everything feels, uh, for lack of a better word, bigly. Um, and, and it's extremely difficult to process any of that. You know, the emotional inputs coming in are huge and they're very hard to deal with. So how did you deal with those? For how long were you a bad kid? Mm, late 20s. <laughs> I don't think that's unusual. So how did, did, did writing coincide with uh, dealing with it? Did it predate dealing with these tendencies? Well, I always liked writing, and I always loved reading, and I always loved, um, I always loved writers. Like, I was always fascinated by writers. Really? I always felt like writers kind of had it figured out. Like, even when they were very depressive and obviously didn't have it figured out, I sort of thought that they did deep down. You know? Like, there are some writers who really do have it figured out. Like, Toni Morrison legitimately, I think, does have it figured out. But then there are other writers, like Kurt Vonnegut, who clearly did not have it figured out. But I was able to think that both of them were, you know, sort of sages. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I do think that books were a tremendous comfort to me when I was a high school and college student. They were um, this constant companion. What, What were you reading then? What were you, left to your own devices, what were you reading then? Well, I mean, a variety of things. I read pretty broadly, even in high school. Like, I've always liked romance novels, and I've always liked, um, I've always liked books that were marketed to girls. Like, I loved the Babysitter's Club when I was in elementary school uh, and, and middle school. And actually, I reread a Babysitter's Club after my, book after my college girlfriend dumped me, and it was good. I'm, you guys are laughing, but, like, those are good books. And what, what is it's just about the, there's them? a pastel cover on them, and you think they're not good, but they are. They're Listen. great. By the way, <laughs> Anne M. Martin, the author of the Babysitter Club books, went on to win a Newbery Honor for a beautiful historical fiction, thank you, beautiful historical fiction book that she wrote. And she is a legitimately great writer. Anyway, a slightly off topic. Well, I think, you know, there's something that happens when you sort of discover reading or start to embrace reading that there's this democratization. Right, yeah. You I just mean, take everything in. Yeah, Eudora Welty wrote a brilliant essay about this called A Sweet Devouring and how, like, you know, one of the great things about uh, series novels or, like, my relationship with the Babysitter's Club books is that you, you devour them. Yeah. It's, like, it's like eating cake and there's always more of it and people <laughs> tell you that it's not bad for you. Um, so it feels like you've discovered, like, a flaw in the system. Sort of, uh, but I also, but I also really loved uh, the mysteries of Pittsburgh uh, by Michael Shabon. Shabon, yeah. I don't know. Does anyone really know how to say his surname? It's Michael Shabon. All right, I trust he's, you. <laughs> he's appeared on the program. Uh, look up the episode. Great writer. <laughs> um, I loved that book. Um, and then I, I read. We read in school. Uh, I read The Bluest Eye, and then I went and read Sula and mm. Beloved, and uh, Toni Morrison novels became a real like fixation of mine. And then I was also, I loved The Virgin Suicides by Jeffrey Eugenides. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm <laughs> uh, not very good with saying authors' names out loud. So far, you've gotten all of them. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it's an Emma Martin. Um, <laughs> Mispronunci- mispronunciation is kind of my thing. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about Toni Morrison? Well, I mean, I think she's probably, like, the greatest novelist of the 20th century, so I think that's part of it, but... 
But, um, but, but let's take that apart a little bit. I mean, yeah. especially as a teenager, well, what do you respond to in those books? Song of Solomon and Beloved are both very rich novels that uh, are symbolically accessible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me, it wasn't like reading Shakespeare where I felt like the language was um, kind of my opponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like I recognized that Shakespeare was great, but it was really difficult for me. Uh, I could fall all the way into, uh, you know, to Beloved or to Sula. And in the case of Sula especially, because it was a n- novel about friendship and also because it was a novel about, you know, the experience of African-American women, something that I knew very little about, I felt like I was getting, uh, I felt like my, my mind was being opened up, you know, and, and I was being asked to think about things that I wasn't asked to think about, frankly, um, during most of the school day. And that was really revelatory for me. So I think that was part of it. But I also just think, you know, sending to sentence, it's such a pleasure. Yeah. Um, I forgot what I was going to ask. Oh my God. <laughs> We've all been there. I'm See, you're criticizing nervous. everybody for, for when they're going to ask their questions. I know. I should get Amy up here with the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's interesting to hear that you you know, collected authors as well as books, that they were very real people to you. Did that make becoming an author real? You know, we often talk about the moment when you realize that the thing I love is something that somebody made uh, and how that can open your eyes to this being a legitimate career path. Right. I mean, I definitely, when I was a kid, thought of authors the way that you think of astronauts, you know, that like it's a cool job, but not something that regular people do. And it didn't seem like something that was going to be available to me. I guess I never really thought that publishing was a realistic goal for me until I got to college. And I had a professor in college who was a published novelist named P.F. Kluge. And, you know, he was a really great writer and a wonderful teacher, but he was also very encouraging of, of my writing. It was a weird, difficult time in, in my life as a writer in a lot of ways because there are only two creative writing classes at Kenyon, intro to, or fiction writing, intro to creative writing and advanced fiction writing, and uh, there were 12 slots for the advanced fiction writing class and 14 applicants, and I was one of the two who didn't get in. And it was, thank you. <laughs> and it, it ruined you. The funny thing is, like... You guys saying awe now, it's sweet, right? But like then when people said awe, it made it so much worse, right? Because like, it's just humiliating. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it didn't ruin me uh, at all. And actually, I recently reran the little story snippet that I sent in, and it was pretty terrible. So, <laughs> Professor probably wasn't wrong, but... Um, it was a really weird time in my life because I felt I, I had very little confidence as a writer, but I was becoming more and more sure that I wanted to write, or at least that I wanted writing to be part of my professional life. Okay, so what happens next? Uh, you know, a, a lot of people listen to this podcast because they are writers, or they want to, and they want to get paid for writing. Right. So let's talk about how you started to get paid to do the thing that you wanted, needed, or loved to do, maybe all three. Yeah, well, um, I wrote a lot, like most writers, before I got paid. Mm -hmm. Um, I I guess for me, it started out right after I graduated from college. I worked for a little while as a student chaplain at a children's hospital, and I thought I was going to go to divinity school and work in interfaith dialogue, which was going to be interesting work and would have involved lots of writing. But then I got to like the campus of divinity school on the first day, and I realized that I did not want to go into that classroom slash learn ancient Greek, slash spend the next three years of my life getting this degree, so I didn't go. 
And then I was in Chicago, and I was unemployed, and I wasn't going to be a graduate student after all. So I went to a temp agency, and I got extremely lucky and ended up getting a temp job doing data entry at a magazine called Booklist, which is the review journal of the American Library Association. And uh, after a few months as a temp, I got hired as, a, um, as an assistant there, mostly doing data entry, but I'm very good at data entry. And it wasn't a joke. It is a skill. And um, I'm extremely detail-oriented and focused, and I enjoy repetitive tasks, so it was right <laughs> up my alley. And, um, and eventually became a production editor there. But after about a year of working there, uh, I was invited to start to review books. And also during my first year of working there, I started reading a lot of young adult literature because I was the closest thing that Booklist had to a teenager. <laughs> And so sometimes sure. editors would run stuff by me and say, like, what do you think of this? And, and my main conclusion was that young adult literature was far more interesting than I had previously given it credit for. Uh, and that I had this incredible thing. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and that I, you know, I realized that this is what I want to do. Like, this is what I want to write. This is, these are the people I want to publish with. This is where I want to live on, in the bookstore. Um, this was when bookstores were a big thing. And... <laughs> Just kidding. Bookstores are still a big thing, thank God, and, and long may they reign. Um, but yeah, so I guess that was, that was the, the, the turn for me. I started getting paid $20 a review to write, uh, to write book reviews. That led to me reading you know, 100 or 200 books a year, which dramatically increased, uh, I think, my ability to, to write stories. And um, yeah. And then realizing what kind of stories I wanted to write from reading all those YA novels. Let's let's uh, take a step back for a second and talk about the stuff you were writing before then, because mm-hmm. uh, I assume you were writing all through high school and college. Uh, and if mm-hmm. you were seeking out these writing classes, what was the subject matter? What was the tenor of these stories? What interested you? I would say that the subject matter was myself, <laughs> and that the tenor of the stories was sincere. <laughs> I was a very sincere writer. Um, And that's a a probably fair knock on my work today that um, I'm still a little sincere at times. Um, But yeah, I guess that's that's what they were like. They were, um, you know, like a little bit overwrought. And I was, I I wanted to sound like, I thought proper books sounded like, you know, I wanted Mm -hmm. to sound like... um, you know, the people we were reading in, in school or the people that my professors were saying were great, you know, Philip Roth and, and John Updike and other men. Um, <laughs> and I remember after I didn't get into the advanced creative writing class, that professor Kluge brought me over to his house one night and he had a glass of scotch and I had a glass of seltzer water and he said, you know, the problem, Green, is that when you tell stories before class, they're great and when you write stories down, they sound nothing like the stories that you're telling before class. Just write down the stories that you're telling before class. Tell it that way. And that was like a huge revelatory moment for me. So what, let's, let's take that apart for a minute. What does that mean? What do you think he meant by that and what did you take from it? I think he meant, like, maybe I was trying to impress him rather than making something as a gift uh, for people. You know, there's a difference. David Foster Wallace talked once about um, look, mom, no hands writing. You know, like, you could... Which, by the way, I mean, David Foster Wallace wasn't totally innocent of. But... uh, (laughs) 
you can you know you can show people all the all the all the things that you can do and you can try to impress them but ultimately i don't think that's what books are for i don't think that's what books are are, are to do i think books are here uh to to be like this weird mutual gift uh you know as a reader you have to be generous with your time and also you have to be generous as a reader because they're you know like when i read the great gatsby in high school i thought it was terrible and that is not the great gatsby's fault right (laughs) that's my fault that's my failure as a reader but as a writer you also have to try to be generous you have to you have to make something from from a place of genuinely wanting to make a gift for someone genuinely hoping that it will be useful uh in their lives that it will be beautiful that it will be meaningful to them that it will be distracting that it will be whatever you want it to be um and that people will be able to make some use out of it and i think that's the shift in my mind that happened around like between 1999 and 2001 where I started to write uh, more for an audience and more, I guess, more effectively for an audience. That's an interesting point and I've never heard it quite put that way. And and this may be a reductive question, but when starting a book, do you ask yourself, what am I giving to the audience? What am I attempting to, what basic, you know, human feeling am I trying to give them? I guess I don't really start there necessarily, but I do uh, like I have it on my I have it on my computer and like in the room where I write like um, to not make it about to try not to make it about me uh, to try not to make it about me or proving something or uh, to have it not come from a place of resentment, but instead to try to make something for. Uh, for people to be focused like it's like how you think differently when you're making someone a gift that you make by hand um, than when you're making something to, to sell on eBay you just think about it differently you approach it differently and when I approach it from the perspective of trying to make it as a gift it goes I mean it's spoken from someone who hasn't published a novel in five years uh, better on, on average I think it's an interesting thing I mean we often hear about a writer telling a story because it's a story that he or she has to tell. Yeah. Is that, does that weigh in? Because that feels like a selfish act. Yeah, I mean, that's happened to me a couple times, but you have to twist the thing that that you have to tell into something that's not just about you, or at least I do. I I keep saying you as if I know (laughs) how you write. (laughs) I don't. I only know how I write. Um, But I guess I have to take that, I mean, The Fall in Their Stars is the best example of a story that I, I genuinely had to write. I tried to write it for like 10 years, and I kept coming back to it, and I couldn't leave it no matter how hard I tried, and then eventually I wrote it. And, but I think I, do, I wasn't able to make the shift toward writing it until I could make the shift away from myself. In that case, it was, it was literal, because um, in all the previous drafts of the book, there was this uh, you know, 22-year-old hospital chaplain uh, <laughs> who is, like, awkwardly handsome, and who is, like, which... uh, I always am very... I always am very praiseful of myself when I I imagine fictive versions of myself. He's, like, he's cute, and it's, like, which doctor will he hook up with? When, like, really, when I was at the hospital, it was, like, uh, nobody ever noticed me. I was, like, invisible. 
Yeah. Well, so, there is that aspect of fiction making, right? right you get to but, live out some some fantasy. Yeah, but for me, like, so what I did with the Fall in Our Stars was I took that I took that you know 22 year old wish fulfillment hospital chaplain character, and I said, I'm going to make you the worst author ever. <laughs> I'm going to make you the. I'm going to instead of making you the person that, the, that I wish I were and the life that I wish I had, I'm going to make you the life that I'm afraid I'm going to have, and that. That transition allowed me to to write it. That it takes it out of the the selfishness, I guess. Yeah, it, of, of I, having to tell. I the hope story. so. I think it worked for people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys like that book? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, they can't say that I don't like it in front of me. It'd be weird. <laughs> Some of them were shaking their heads. Okay. <laughs> Not for okay. me, thank you. It's okay. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about um, the young adult stuff that you read as a reader and reviewer. I'm mm-hmm. curious about what was around at that time. I mean, you, if you were reading 100, 200 books a year, that's so much input. That's that's yeah. amazingly eye-opening. But what were the things that sort of stood out to you? Uh, Walter Dean Myers had a book out that year called Monster that won the first ever Prince Award. That's just an amazing yeah. book. Weird and beautiful and... Fair. Oh God, what a what a what a giant of of YA literature. Um, Ellen Whitlinger had a book out that year called Hard Love. That was about two kids who uh, who make a zine uh, that I really loved. Um, Laurie Hall Sanderson's book Speak uh, came out that year as well. It was amazing. It was like an amazing year for YA fiction. I'm going to go re-record that for the podcast. It was like an amazing year for YA fiction. It's important <laughs> to use your um, uh, articles. Um, and, jeez, uh, there, were, there were several other books. There was a book that year by a guy named Terry Truman called, um, I think, Stuck in Neutral, thank you. We should just ask the audience what came out that year. They know better than I do. Stuck in Neutral, which I thought was a really interesting novel. And, and, and then what, I and I started the other thing, and I started reading uh, like YA poetry too. Like, uh, like I read Jackie Woodson books that year, and it was just it, just the idea that they were writers like Laurie Holtz Anderson and M T Anderson's book Feed came out that year, and Jackie Woodson and and Walter Dean Myers and writers of that caliber were writing YA fiction, which I'd always thought was Sweet Valley High books, which by the way are not that bad. Um, <laughs> It was really exciting to me. Yeah, I mean, t- taking these as a group, what did you pull out of those other than these are real writers writing these things? Well, I guess what I pulled out of them was that, boy, there's a lot of different ways to write YA fiction, sure. and this thing that I thought was one thing is, in fact, many, many, many things, you know? And then uh, you, you start to read writers like Holly Black or, or like Patrick Ness, and you're like, okay, well, this is everything, really. This is everything. It's just that it focuses on teenagers, which is a time of life that interests me a lot as a writer. Mm-hmm. And also, I really, um, I really like teenagers as readers. I think when I was starting out, though, a lot of it was I wanted to write for that audience because I wanted to write about that time of life because most of my favorite writers had written about that time of life, you know, Catcher in the Rise about that time of life and Sula, like I talked about before, and, uh, you know, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and there's such a great American tradition of writing about uh, coming of age because we're sort of a country in this perpetual coming of age. So I think that was the initial attraction to me, but also just, yeah, the idea of having those people as colleagues was really exciting. 
It's interesting. I mean, at, at this time, and this was what, the mid-90s? It was much later than that. Thank you. <laughs> was it really? Not that much later. Maybe like, maybe like 99, 2000, okay. 2000. Let's say 2000. I don't think it was that late. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, YA was not necessarily what it is now. You know, there was, I won't say a stigma attached, because I don't think there was, because we did get things like Walter Dean Myers and right. like his books and, and the great literature that deals with young adults that ne- wasn't necessarily labeled young adult. But to choose to go into that field, clearly you were passionate about it. Did it change the way you were writing? It didn't change the way I was writing, and I think that was probably a key to the success of Looking for Alaska, because I think if I'd thought about writing for teenagers, you almost, in the act of making that thought, you start to condescend to them. You start to think like, oh, are they ready for this? Do they think about this? Are they, are they going to be cool with this? But I was so young in my mind... Uh, that I almost thought of them as peers. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember doing my first book event, like, a few days after... I say like a lot. A few days after Looking for Alaska came out, and I did an event at a high school. And I remember thinking, why are these kids so little? <laughs> are we sure this isn't a middle school? And then I realized, no, you're just super old, man. <laughs> you're 26. Like, you are, you are old. Life has passed you by. <laughs> But emotionally... But emotionally, I was just, like I said, I was just ending my naughty teenage years. <laughs> but I imagine, you know, that, that made things a little easier for you. Your interests were not necessarily so far from what a 15-year-old's interests are. Yeah, I mean, certainly... At, it's at their base, you know what right. I'm saying? I mean, I, certainly I had a lot of the same concerns. And I think yeah. the questions that are at the center of looking for Alaska were still very much at the center of my own life and my own thinking about life when I was writing it. So it didn't feel like I was writing about my childhood, even though in a lot of ways I was. Uh, it felt like I was writing about kind of my contemporary concerns through the lens of this place where I went to high school. Mm-hmm. S- something happens, I feel, when you embark on your first novel or I guess the first novel that you're writing and maybe that wasn't Looking for Alaska there may have been some that predate that in fact let's ask that first no Looking for Alaska was the first thing I finished yeah okay that's that's pretty impressive then well I mean Not it a took question. a long time to finish but and it's a pretty short novel but yeah <laughs> um, but it's also a really great novel I'm a fan thank you you guys are not <laughs> um Something happens, I, I feel, when you embark on that first, what is to become your first novel, when all of the doors are open and you have to choose the one to go through. Uh, so how did, how did that start to take shape? What was the story you wanted to tell? What were the questions you wanted to ask? I guess the main question I wanted to ask was, um, if you don't get an answer to a question that is essential to your understanding of the meaning of life, can you still lead a hopeful life? Like, if you have to live with some intense, uh, unacceptable level of ambiguity for the rest of your life, can you still have a hopeful life? And then I wanted to write and think about grief. Uh, I I wanted to... um, I think in some ways I was still processing losses that I experienced when I was in high school. Um, 
in other ways, I was probably processing losses that were more recent to the writing of the novel. But those were, the, I guess, the big questions that, that I started out with. So how did those start to... You know, those are, those are enormous questions yeah. to try to tackle in... 200 pages. So yeah, I mean, I had, this, take shape? I had this nice built-in structure of what happened, um, you know, when I was in high school. So that's a nice, like, uh, built-in structure to have when you're writing a novel. <laughs> I think that's why a lot of first novels tend to be pretty autobiographical, because you can just... I remember sometimes my publisher, Julie Strauss-Gable, I've had the same editor my whole, my whole life, uh, publishing life. Uh, I remember sometimes with Looking for Alaska, she would say, like, why is this in here? It's such a weird, unnecessary detail. And I would be like, Julie, that happened. (laughs) And she would be like, that's not a good reason for it to be in this novel. Does it stay in it? But it's real, Julie. (laughs) No, none of that stuff stayed in it. It doesn't stay in it? No. But that's sort of an interesting question, I think. I mean, especially as you move further away from real-life incidents. Yeah. And... Creating something true, if even if the incidents are not necessarily true, you know where where is that line? How important is truth, and how important is literal truth? Um, I don't think literal truth is important at all. I don't I mean, what is it? Faulkner is always quoted as saying, "I'm not sure he actually said it." Um, I try not to let the facts get in the way of the truth. Um, Which, I mean, there's power in that. It's great advice. Yeah, but you also can't let um, the fact that something is a fact get in the way of the truth, you know? Um, One of my high school friends is a wonderful novelist named Daniel Alarcon, and Daniel and I were talking about this while I was writing uh, Looking for Alaska, and I was like, you know, I'm worried that the novel is fictional. I want to emphasize that. It really is fictional, and like the events of the book are fictional, and the characters are fictional. But there are definitely also connections to the real place that I went to high school and, um, and to the real person I was in high school. And I remember talking about that with Daniel and just being like, I'm really worried about that. And he was like, well, there were 52 kids in our graduating class, and if you spend you know, your whole time writing this novel thinking about those 52 kids and not about the people that you're writing it for, then you've made a horrible mistake. And I tried to take that to heart. So it's ultimately Daniel's fault. (laughs) Uh, Looking at the novels that came after, is that advice something that you revisit? I mean, have have you gotten in trouble? No, I haven't gotten in trouble, but I also, when it comes to my, when it comes to my family, I mean, I try to ask people if it's okay, Mm -hmm. you know, to use something. And, uh, I used to think that uh, making books was more important than anything else that I would ever do, and that it was the that any anything that you sacrificed for the work was worth it because the work is all that matters, and that's ludicrous. That's so <laughs> cringy and embarrassing and stupid. And I don't. I'm sorry if any of you believe that, but I just don't believe that at all. And I want to like it may criticize past me for thinking that. It may be something you grow out of. Maybe. I mean, now that I have you know children and and, and a family, I I do, you know I would never write in any direct way about my kids because I don't. I don't want them to ever read a book where they think like, well, my father was um, using his relationship with me (laughs) to get at something fictional that he then sold. (laughs) That sounds horrible. Is is the selling part the horrible part? Maybe, maybe. I mean, I I think I'm very, I am somewhat uncomfortable with with the whole selling part um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but... uh, 
but also very grateful for it. So it's complicated. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, the, the big questions, and I think the reason people tend to listen to this podcast are, how do I get to do what you do? Uh, and where do ideas come from? And these are big questions, and they are, for every writer, different answers. Um, but I do want to look at some of your books and sort of talk about how you, you start to shape them. And do they start with a big question for you? Do they start with a character? Do they start... What, what's the seed? I guess they start with characters, usually two characters in some conflict, two people in a room together somewhere. Uh, in the case of The Fault in Our Stars, Hazel and Gus in the room together in that support group. And that, you know, and, and, the, and, then, and then I thought, okay, and there's a support group leader and he's, you know, all the adult characters in that book are versions of me. So, like, he's like, <laughs> he's, he's you. He's like, he's like that you when you did youth group. He's youth group you. <laughs> And then I start to think about, well, okay, Hazel and Gus are in that room together, and she, uh, you know, she's extremely uncomfortable and doesn't want to be there, and he has this air of confidence, uh, but of course, like, this intense fragility like like everybody who thinks who acts confidently and um and that and, and that's where it starts for me like that's where that book started for me um with those characters um one of whom ended up being you know like a very minor character in, in the novel did you did you know what the group was yeah yeah, yeah. i knew that okay. she had cancer yeah and i knew that i knew that it was like one of these support groups for kids i mean i've been to i've been to those support groups so i know how painful they can be um and yeah and then you know but it depends on the book i think with paper towns i was thinking about um the friends that i looked up to when i was in high school the people who seemed to me like they were more than people and why it was that i as a boy tended to uh idealize uh, these girls that i looked up to and thought were cooler than me and and in that process like i I somehow thought that I was doing them a, a favor, um, but of course I, I was doing them this terrible disservice of uh, ultimately objectifying them and seeing them as um, uh, as amazing things or as precious things rather than as a, as human beings. And so I was thinking about me in high school and uh, this girl this girl in high school who was uh, very impressive to me and how difficult I found it to imagine her complexly. And you know, and then it, and then it goes from there. That makes it sound though like I have an idea one day, and then I write it down, and then there's a novel, which is not how I write. Like right. I have ideas very slowly, and they they reform, and they don't, you know, they don't really um, become concrete for a long time. And then when they do become concrete, I write a scene, and I end up deleting all of it or most of it. And you know, then it's four years later, there's a novel. So it, for me, it's a very slow process of linking very, really small ideas together. Uh, I think of it more like, remember when you were a kid and you would take a piece of construction paper and you'd put a little bit of paste on it and then you'd turn it into a ring and then you'd this is a visual metaphor for the podcast listeners. 
I think you put another uh, piece of construction paper and turn it into a ring, and then doing that, you could eventually make a, a huge necklace. It's like that, but, but, but four years of that. <laughs> Let, I'm curious to hear, when an idea is taking shape and you're turning it over in your head, uh, and before it quite has taken hold, what does that look like? What does your day-to-day look like? And we're going to get into some deep process stuff. Oh, I mean, it just looks like writing. It just, you know... I mean, so you're actually sitting and writing out... Yeah, stuff. yeah. I mean, for me, all... Both good writing and bad writing and idea generation all look the same, which is just like, they look like typing. Oh, really? Yeah, so I just type and I try to get to something and then I erase and, you know, I have lots of different documents and I go back and forth among the documents and... Um, and then there are long periods where I don't write, but it's not because I'm uh, in an idea formation period. It's because I can't bring myself to write. So, Is that the part before the writing in earnest begins? Sometimes. Okay. Sometimes, though, I spend like three months not writing, and then I write, and I write horribly. Uh, <laughs> I find it to be a very unpredictable, fickle thing. Like, I don't have any uh, belief that there uh, are muses, you know, on our shoulders as writers whispering stuff into our ears, but I also don't have a better explanation for what's happening. <laughs> I, I, have you been able to harness it? Have you been able to find a process or a routine that helps? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's why I've written so many books in the last five years. <laughs> no, no, I haven't found out, no. I mean, I write in the, I write in the mornings. I, I write in the mornings, then I go into the office in the afternoon. So mm-hmm. I try to keep to that schedule, and, um, and I try to give myself permission to, to write poorly and give myself permission to write things that won't end up in a book and, and not get uh, angry or frustrated with myself. I think one of the things that a lot of writers struggle with is this you know, they, this interior voice that is incredibly cruel, uh, you know, that says to you things that you would never say to another human being. And then, indeed, if you did say to another human being, would be pro- possibly criminal. Uh, and yet, you don't have a problem saying these things to yourself while you're writing. And it, that's just incredibly cruel. So I try really hard not to, not to do that to myself, although it, it is hard sometimes. Sure. I mean, there's, there's an inner critic, there's an inner editor, there's an inner parent. Right, yeah, all those, all, all those voices are, are shouting at you at the same time, and you're just like, shh, I'm trying to write a sentence. Uh, when the novel starts coming, is it still in fits and stops? Mm, sometimes it's still in fits and stops. Sometimes it comes pretty clean. But even when it comes clean, uh, so there will be a period of six months at some point in this process for me where I write a draft of a novel and at the beginning of the six months I will have close to a blank Word document and at the end of the six months I'll have like a 250 page Word document. But I would say on average like 80% of that Word doc gets deleted in the course of revision. So it's not... It does, it does usually flow... But that doesn't mean that it's good. Sure. But it's something on the page. Yeah, once which... you have something on the page, I find it a lot easier to work with mm-hmm. um, than just working with kind of like hopes and dreams for <laughs> when there's stuff on the page here or what should happen next. Even if most of it's bad, yeah. um, there's still something to work with at least. Well, it can be so unwieldy. 
right? Is yeah, Again, I mean, it's all these open doors. Yeah, novels are big, and like you said, there's lots of open doors. And one of the weird things about a book, of course, is that if you change something in the middle, it has repercussions for the beginning and the end. And and then you change those things, the beginning and the end, and you find that that, that has repercussions for the middle. It's like, for me, it's a little bit like doing a Rubik's Cube but like you never learn how to do a Rubik's cube, you know, like I know there are people who are really good at doing Rubik's cubes and can do them in seven seconds. And there are all these YouTube tutorials and I've watched the YouTube tutorials and I've held my Rubik's cube while watching the YouTube tutorial. And I still, the way that I solve a Rubik's cube is by slowly and methodically going through the 16 billion possibilities (laughs) until I have solved the Rubik's cube. So it feels like that, kind of. That is the best metaphor I've heard for writing. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this, and it's a hard question for many writers. Do you enjoy the process? <sighs> I don't think that's the right verb. Um, <laughs> I never know. I, I guess I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know that I want to enjoy it. I don't know that I'm going to that part of myself for enjoyment so much as I'm going to that part of myself for some kind of deep consolation that's extremely important to me uh, and that almost uh, straightens out the, the, the scary loops of my thinking. And that's what I think I find a lot of pleasure in. I don't know if it's enjoyment as such, but I really like it when, you know, this... I mean, we all, even people who don't have obsessive thinking problems often find themselves like thinking in spirals or thinking things that they don't necessarily want to think, which is a weird idea the more you think about it. And, and for me, writing, just go all the way down. That idea goes all the way to the very bottom. Um, anyway, for me, the part of what writing does is like stretch stretch those thoughts out into something that makes sense into something that looks like a line instead of a scary squiggle that has no beginning or end and there's a pleasure in that for sure it's interesting hearing you talk about writing and reading your books and the visual thinking that comes across in both uh is that is this how you see the world is there a translation process that is palpable to you when you have fingers on keyboard um Probably it's hard. Yeah, I don't like I don't like picture a movie in my mind or anything. But I think we I think it's very difficult for us not to write in the context of images, just because you know the culture of images is so incredibly strong in contemporary life. Like you know, we're not very far removed in human history from most people never seeing an image in their lives or only seeing an image uh, when they go to church. And uh, suddenly we literally never go into a room without images. <laughs> uh, so I think it's really hard to, to, to separate the language from image at this point. But I do, um, I do think, I guess I do think visually and I do, I, I do sort of somewhat obsessively try to find uh, metaphors or, uh, or analogies to explain non-sensorial experiences in, in my head, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple more questions. I have a lot more questions that I want to get to, but I want to make sure you guys get a chance. So now is the time. If you have a question, come stand up at this yellow line. While you do that, I'm going to ask John this. It's interesting to me to hear that 
20% maybe what stays from that first draft. And I'm really curious, and I know these guys are too, to hear about wrong roads that you may have gone down and what you learned from them. Oh, God, so many <laughs> wrong roads. Tell us the alternate realities of some of these books. My novel, Paper Towns, is about um, a young woman who goes missing and seems to have left clues behind as to her whereabouts. But for a long time, it was about post office boxes and the history of the American Postal Service and the role that the really genuinely fascinating role that post office boxes have played in that history and how different the world would be today if all of us got our mail at post office boxes instead of at our homes. It was really good. (laughs) Julie didn't like it as much as I did, though. Yeah. But did you know on finishing that version? Nope. (laughs) Really? Nope. So it's stuck in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and like, (laughs) Julie refers to these things as as, uh, tied to the tracks uh, moments because in not even the first draft, I regret to say, but in the second draft of of, uh, The Fault in Our Stars, the novel ends shortly after this reclusive Dutch-American author, Peter Van Houten, ties uh, one of the characters to railroad tracks as an exploration of the trolley problem, which is a really... Interesting to me idea in (laughs) philosophy, I guess. And Julie was like, I can't tell if this is a joke. (laughs) And I was like, no, man, this is a really interesting way in to the trolley problem. (laughs) And she was like, I don't think this is a book about the trolley problem. And I was like, well, that's where you're wrong. <laughs> this really gives the rest of us hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the weird thing is, like, then when I, write the, like, when I wrote the actual ending for The Fault in Our Stars, I remember thinking, she's going to think this is crazy. <laughs> and she read it, and she was like, yeah, that's like a normal ending for a novel. <laughs> I was like, okay. Have you learned anything going forward from that? Definitely not, man. Yeah. I still put trolley problem things in, in every single one of my books. Like, No, yeah, definitely not. All right, these are a lot of questions. I want to make sure we get through as many of them as we can, so please keep them short, uh, and I'll ask you to keep the answers somewhat brief as well. Shoot. So you've talked about uh, OCD uh, here and elsewhere. Obviously, there are ways in which it's a hindrance uh, to your productivity and to the work that you do. Are there ways in which it's a help? Yeah, probably. I want to be really careful not to uh, link mental illness too closely with creative output or to go down that like homeland Carrie Matheson thing of like I have to go off my meds to solve the crime. <laughs> I think that's a very dangerous line of thinking. But I also am conscious of the fact that like you know, obsessively going over ideas in my head hour after hour after hour probably is helpful in some ways for fiction writing. Which, like you say, I mean, even those who are not diagnosed or don't have yeah, uh, there are lots a disorder of people. do totally. tend to do that. Totally, yeah. I think writers tend to think that way regardless. That's true. Thank you. I was wondering more as a reader, because um, you mentioned reading really broadly, and I 
I once commented asking about um, you having read Native Son, um, and I was wondering how you like to access books. Do you like to like whether it's world building or character, like the actual language in the novels? Like, what's your favorite way to get into a book? I'm pretty open minded. That's a great question. I love world building, uh, and I can I can enjoy a novel that's just a great world build with no plot. Uh, some of my favorite books are like that. What uh, is like that? Oh, I mean, I, now I don't want to say books out loud because I don't want to hurt the author's feelings. We'll keep this between us. Um, no. <laughs> I don't trust you. Uh, you are right. <laughs> um, but I also, I, I, guess, I guess I love, but I, I really love character-driven novels. I probably love character-driven novels the most. I love, like, I love a good first-person voice. So I love, I love character books. How do you create and develop a very strong first-person voice that's separate from your own? Yeah, I mean, let, let me broaden that out a little bit. But I think what we respond to in your novels are your characters. You know, they, we love these characters, flaws and all. How do you, how do you create those? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how to talk about voice. I... I don't, and I wish, I, I feel like if I could talk about it or if I could understand it, then I could probably do it e- more easily and get into a voice and find, find it and then stay there. And I find it difficult, pra- I mean, I think that's the hardest part of writing for me is like finding the character's voice and locking in on it and staying locked in on it through the novel. Because I think readers will forgive a lot if you're still in the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of times, like, the great pleasure, like, if you think about what we love about Catcher in the Rye, it isn't that he's walking around New York for two days not doing anything. <laughs> right? It's not the things that happen. It's, it's, it's the way they're described. And so, I don't really know how voice works, but it is incredibly important. <laughs> are, you, are you able to look at your books and find commonalities among the voices? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, What are those? Uh, well, I like writing about smart kids, and I like writing about uh, kids who are really intellectually curious. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I hear a lot, like, well, all, all of your books sound the same. And I don't, that just doesn't, I like, I, I, they sound right to me. <laughs> so I don't know. It's hard, it's really hard to describe that. But, like, I, I'm, I'm just trying to get to a point where the Character makes sense to me as a as a real person, where I can feel their lives with the same texture, or at least close to the same texture I feel my own life. It's really like one of the things that's a huge relief for me about writing a novel is that it, it allows you to escape yourself, right? Like there's this incredibly like horror movie level weird thing about being a person, which is that you are stuck inside of this one body with just this one consciousness, and like. What exactly you are inside that body is not super clear, right? Like, you can't even really establish what this you is that you keep talking about, but you know that you're, like, stuck inside of this body and that you can't be in any of the other bodies or see out of any of the other eyes. That's terrifying (laughs) to me. And, um, And I guess, like, when I'm in a voice... When I'm in an, a story, I feel like I'm out of that. I feel like I'm not stuck in myself. So the way that I know it's working, or at least I hope I know it's working, is when I don't feel stuck in myself. Well, it's horrific. <laughs> this is a fun Cronenberg yeah, world sorry. you live I in. Mean, 
Um, this kind of goes off the questions that were just answered, but like, what advice do you have for someone who is trying to write from a perspective that they have know nothing about and haven't experienced themselves? And like you writing about Hazel, a teenage girl who has cancer, <laughs> doesn't really correlate with you as a grown man. How would you, you know, it's just, <laughs> how would you, re- how do you research and understand that deeply about someone? How do you crawl into that skin? Yeah. I think you just, I think you have to be super careful. I mean, I think you have to be really, really careful, especially, I mean, when I was writing about uh, Hazel, it was important. I wanted to be very careful because so many people write about illness so terribly in ways that um, really dehumanize sick people and, and treat them as lessons that healthy people learn rather than as people. And I w- was really worried about that. And so one of the things I did was have kids I knew who, um, I mean, I talked to a lot of kids while I was thinking about the story and writing the story, which was over the course of, you know, 10 years. And then uh, once I'd written a, a draft, I had, I had people read it um, who had more experience with that. And they gave me very honest feedback. And in some cases, the feedback was like, this is BS, and, um, and I'm super tired of hearing it. And so I incorporated that into the, into the novel. Do you, I had, uh, I talked to Patrick Ness recently uh, oh, God, for the podcast, so who's so good. So good. Um, and he talked about how he loves the puzzle aspect of, uh, of writing a novel. And a lot of that sounds very similar, but he talked about setting up parameters for himself. Is that something you do? Is that helpful to you? For him, I mean, a very basic example was in A Monster Calls, he never wanted anyone to say, I love you. So his job was to make the emotion clear without saying that. That's a good idea. I should do that. <laughs> I like that idea. I'm going to steal, I'm gonna solved, steal right? that idea from Patrick Ness. <laughs> I do try to make it so there isn't much crying, mm-hmm. and especially in a sad book. I remember in the first draft of Looking for Alaska, Julie was like, these people are crying like every four pages. <laughs> and I was like, it's sad. I'm sad. I feel sad. It's how I feel right now. And she was like, make them cry once. And that was way better. Yeah, that's great. Do you actively think about incorporating activism into your work? And if you do, how do you do that without alienating people who might disagree with you? Well, I think that's a really difficult, complicated, interesting question. Uh, We don't have time for it. I'm sorry. No, we do. We do. We do. Uh, so I, I, I am fascinated by books of ideas or, or political novels, even ones that I revile, like The Fountainhead. And, <laughs> but, but the thing about a book of ideas is that it is only as good as its ideas, right? Like The Fountainhead uh, is terrible because of its ideas, not ultimately because of its... I mean, you know, there's nothing great about the sentences either, but like... <laughs> What makes me dislike it as a novel, um, I will talk about how much I don't like that book. Uh, What makes me dislike it as a novel is its ideas. Uh, I think the most effective way to, and I, I I, I haven't done a great job of this, I should say, as a first note, but in my experience as a reader, the most effective way is to put uh, put the reader inside the experience of someone else and to force the reader to reckon with that experience uh, in an honest and authentic way. Because if you do that, uh, the reader can't be alienated, right? Like the reader can't, can't continue to say the thing that they've always been able to say, which is that is someone else's problem, which is this person is... 
uh, X or Y is merely merely one thing or merely another, but instead you force them to see that character as a full human being with a rich and complicated life, and that act of humanizing someone, I think, does go a long way uh, toward those activist goals. Uh, do you ever get like worries or anxiety about like sharing your work with others once you've written something? And if so, how do you deal with that? Yes. <laughs> Who's your first reader? Uh, Julie, my publisher, is my first reader, and then usually simultaneously my wife, Sarah. Um, that's, to be honest, like that's where the most nerves are, is when Julie and Sarah are reading something, or Rosiana, my production partner, reads stuff very early as well, and that's very scary. But um, it's also really scary right before a book comes out. I mean, right before The Fall of Our Stars came out, I was just sick. Just, I threw up almost every day. I was so scared and overwhelmed and freaked out. And, oh, and What were you afraid of? Uh, that people wouldn't like it, or alternately, that they w- would like it and that it would be this like huge seismic shift in my private life. <laughs> Luckily, you came out of that unscathed. Yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think that's universal, but I think ultimately all, all I can do, or like what I, my, my feeling is all I can do is try to make something for people and hope that they like it, and I have to let that go. I have to let the thing go. I have to let it become theirs. You know, once it's out there, it's not mine anymore, and I have to, it's difficult painful at times, but I have to let it become yours. Well, just, you know, two observations on that. Um, You did talk about how you are writing to give this to other people. So it is going to be part of the process, which you have to know. But the hard part, and I think you, you say, like, giving it away is very hard, but the giving it away is very hard if you are honest in the material. Right, yeah. I mean, you're exposed, right? I mean, at the end of any serious passionate writing project you're exposed and you're very raw and it's pretty scary uh so how do you control or like deal with the uncontrollable thoughts that you don't want to be thinking about and like how do you be productive and be able to write with those (sighs) (laughs) succinctly So listen, it's it's your con. We got all night. The weird, <laughs> right? So the weird thing about having thoughts that you can't control, or thoughts that you didn't choose to have, and thoughts that you can't banish from your mind, is what does that even mean if you are like on some level your thoughts, right? Like regardless of whether you take the. Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am thing all the way to the final train stop. Like, at some point, you have to reckon with this idea, well, if those thoughts aren't mine, whose are they exactly? From whence do they come if not me, the only person who knows about them? (laughs) And that's a really, like, painful, difficult thing to have to reckon with because then you feel like it's your fault that you're having these thoughts. And for those of you who don't know, like, people with OCD often have these intrusive thoughts which can be extremely horrifying. Like, uh, in the hopes of making you feel better, I will give you an example of one of mine, which is that I will have this, like, in, 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 extreme... I will find it unable to stop thinking about cutting off my own arm, which I don't want to do. 
I like having both my arms, but I, um, but I can't stop thinking about it. And um, so what I guess like the gift for me is an understanding that um, I don't actually want to do that. And, um, and an understanding that like it, I'm, not a, I'm not bad or gross or, or impure or worse than anyone else for having had that thought. Um, and, and that allows me to say, okay, well, like, this is a weird, this is a weird, unpleasant thing that my brain does, and I wish it didn't do this thing, but, like, sometimes my back hurts, and, like, that's a weird, unpleasant thing that happens to me, and I'm going to go on, I'm going to continue to be a person, and the other thing that I would say is that, like, I, to be honest, like, when it's really bad, I can't write, and so I can't write, like, that sucks, but, you know, it's like having any other d- disability that prevents you from working sometimes, like, that sucks, Try hard to get it treated. Most, almost all the time, mental health disorders are treatable, and it does get better. It may not be better forever, but it will get better, and then maybe it'll get worse again, and then it'll get better again. And if I can just zoom out enough to say that, that like how it feels now is not how it's always going to feel, and not catastrophize, and not think this is the rest of my life, it becomes much easier to live with. Uh, uh, have you ever considered or have you ever written or considered writing something involving OCD yeah that's gonna have to be my whole answer though cause if I answer any more I'll get in trouble right. <laughs> god a lot of questions about OCD today is your question about literally anything else Yes. It's like it, they can't stop talking about it. <laughs> it's, it's not about OCD. <laughs> Does it ever happen to you that when you're writing, you sometimes feel like you're not writing well and you just don't want to continue? And if so, how do you get past that? Yeah, I mean, I stop a lot of times. <laughs> you know, like, don't you have deadlines? Uh, you know, it's a funny thing, man. Like, <laughs> you have deadlines, and then... you you know, you miss them, and you miss them, and you miss them. And then at some point, they just stop assigning you deadlines. <laughs> I mean, this is like, I, I mean, I'm making this joke, but like, the truth is, for most of my writing life, and, and for almost all working writers, like, you have to honor deadlines. Um, and for most of my writing life, I did honor deadlines, and that meant sometimes, like, publishing books when I, you know, I've been very lucky to have an editor who always made sure that, you know, we were finished with something before um, we, we published it, and that's that was an inc- incredible good fortune. But, you know, writing is not just art. Uh, at least in my case, it's also how I make a living, and so I've got to balance the job part of it with the art part of it, but I've been really, really lucky in a lot of ways in the last five years, um, extremely, you know, off the charts lucky to not have to meet those deadlines, and so I haven't. Um, yeah, I mean, I throw, I, I, I abandon stuff all the time, and, and then the hope for me, I guess, is that either one day I'll go back to it, as I eventually did with The Fault in Our Stars, which I abandoned, uh, you know, a dozen times over the ten years that I was trying to write it, or that I'll be able to cannibalize from it, um, you know, something, some a sentence or two, at least, so that it won't have felt like wasted time. But I, I mean, the truth is I don't think it's ever wasted time, because you're always working your way through, through an idea or through, through a story. How does writing change the writer? Or at least, how has writing affected you? 
Well, I think it's been a great, that's an interesting question. I think it's been, a, I think it's been a great gift to me. I mean, it's, a, it's not just professionally and allowing me to have this amazing job that I love and feel so lucky to have, but also, um, I guess, creatively and personally. One of the things I realized, I, I mean, there was a long time after The Fall of the Stars came out when I didn't think I was going to write an, another novel, and uh, I, f- I felt sort of okay with that for a long time. But I think one of the things that I've, I've realized in the last year, year and a half, is that I, uh, I like writing. Um, I don't know if I enjoy it, but I, <laughs> I like it. And I also maybe need it. I maybe need it in my life um, for structure, and I maybe need it in my life for, for other deeper reasons. And so it's given me, um, like I said, a pass out of myself at times, but also... Uh, it's 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 wonderful play, you know. It's like wonderful imaginative play. You get to be a kid again. Uh, so my question is: uh, Do you think that social media is changing the relationship between author and reader? <laughs> and if you do, uh, in what ways do you think that that change might be affecting the reader or and the writer? Yeah, uh, it is changing it. I think. Um, Although maybe not as profoundly as I used to think it was. I I remember I used to think like, oh, social media has made it so that the author is now inevitably a character in the book. And I, I have always sought a world where the author is dead and the author is irrelevant and what the author thinks doesn't matter and what if the author tells you what happens after the end of the story then the author is being a jerk because the story belongs to its readers and the author can't comment on anything outside of the text <sighs> and I guess like I find myself going two ways first of all I'm not sure that that's right all these strong opinions that I've had for my whole life it's just I'm not sure that they were right <laughs> Almost every strong opinion I used to have, I'm just like, well, but maybe, maybe there are exceptions to that rule that you've been so stringent about and such a jerk about on the internet for the last 10 years. <laughs> and then secondarily, I, it's not like Salinger isn't a character in Catcher in the Rye, despite his, you know, semi-reclusiveness. Salinger is the most, like, second or third most interesting character in Catcher in the Rye, you know? Like, there's no denying the Salingeriness of that novel. There's no denying the, like, weird and beautiful fact that this is a person who saw more combat in World War II than almost any other American, who saw more than Vonnegut, more than Norman Mailer, more than Joseph Heller, and went home and wrote not about the things that those people wrote about, but about a boy walking around New York City. Like, that's interesting. And that's part of the story. And I guess when I was writing The Fault in Our Stars was the first time that I accepted this and I kind of put myself in the novel as, as Van Houten. I mean, a bad version of myself in the novel as Van Houten. And I, but since then, yes, I have been thinking about this a lot and obviously have not come to any firm conclusions. <laughs> I'm glad we could help you work it out a little bit, though. Yeah. It's like a therapy session. It's, it's real intense we're gonna, up here. We're, we're going to go a little how do you take such hard and big ideas and turn them into fun and relatable stories that make people see the world differently? Oh, well, I think life is very funny, you know? Like, like all the parts of life that, that, that are hard are also very funny. Um, you know, death, dying is at times, it's very sad, it's, but it's also at times very funny, and dying people are often the funniest people in the room. Del Close's last words, in fact, were, I'm tired of being the funniest person in the room. <laughs> And uh, 
I want to try to reflect that, like that life is life is big and bountiful and beautiful, and that these things all coexist together. And uh, there's no, there are no bright lines the way that um, that sometimes uh, uh, we imagine them. You know, like uh, tragedy and comedy are not not really opposites. That is so important. Listen, he threw that away, but that is so important. If you are writing, please remember that. Well, that was, the think, the lesson that I had to learn in terms of the sincerity of my books, that I was always going to be like a little bit of an overly sincere writer, and there's no getting around that, and that's just part of who I am as a writer, I think. But, um, but that, like, I also needed to try to let myself be, be funny when I could. Hi. Uh, this is a light question. Great. Um, there's a conversation in Abundance of Catherines where they talk about uh, why the shower curtain attacks you when you take a hot shower. <laughs> and I, it sounded like a conversation uh, that you would have had with Hank at some point. Is yeah. there an influence there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so when I was writing in Abundance of Catherines, I had this day job writing for Mental Floss magazine. And so I would spend like eight hours a day writing these like trivia facts for Mental Floss for their books. In fact, I... I wrote four of these books um, that I'm I'm quite proud of, but uh, they're you know like funny little trivia books, and um, and then I would, at night I would work on an abundance of Catherines, and I would just be like, how much mental fall stuff can I fit in Catherines today? <laughs> <laughs> So it's not really something that came from a conversation with Hank, although it is totally the kind of question we would answer on Dear Hank and John. Um, but it is, it, it, yeah, it definitely, I definitely stole it from Mental Floss. So thanks, Mental Floss. <laughs> Do you have any advice about balancing being a writer with being a parent? Oh. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? It's so hard. They just have so many needs. <laughs> the, the books, the writers, or the kids? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody is just a big ball of need. Um, it's really, really hard. It's especially hard if you're, um, if you're the primary caregiver and you're there all day, or if you are working a full-time job and parenting and trying to write. Um, I know a lot of people who've done it successfully by getting up extremely early. Um, the way that I do it is, you know, I'm really, really lucky to be able to write for three or four hours in the morning, and we have childcare during that time, and I'm able to write then. Um, and then I also write after the kids go to bed. One of the problems with that, though, of course, is that you're extremely tired by the time the kids go to bed, and you're pretty drained, and it's really hard to, like, get your energy up to do anything other than, like, watch TV. Um, so that is not really helpful advice. <laughs> but I think if you can find that hour or two hours a day, sometimes that's enough. Um, sometimes that's enough to, to, you know, keep momentum on a project. I, I will add, um, and, and I don't have kids, but I do have a wife, and, and I like to make time for her. Um, <laughs> and it's hard, but setting yourself a word limit really helps because if you hit it early, you get to be done. Graham Greene wrote 500 words a day no matter what. Like, 500 was, is so easy. Even if it was in the middle of a sentence, okay. he just got up and walked away. <laughs> and if he finished a book, he'd start the next one. Is that true? That is true. God. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine being like, well, 
finish this book. We're all lined Still up. Still got 118 <laughs> words to go. Guess I'll start the next one. But a thousand words, 500 words is doable. Like it doesn't seem insurmountable, but it also is, you know, uh, it, it's substantive. It's substantive. Yeah, I mean, 500 words a day, you write 50,000 words in 100 days. If I could do that, I'd be killing it. <laughs> you mentioned several times that you haven't written a book within the last five years, but you've done many other things uh, over the last five years, not least of which is the videos over the Syrian refugees and the African healthcare. What drives you to go beyond just your own personal living and to move past just being a writer, but moving forward through uh, and helping others? Well, I've always been lucky to have work other than writing. Um, and, you know, I, I feel very, I feel very, I guess I feel very passionately about this huge empathy gap that we have in, in most of the developed world where we spend very little time thinking about or considering the complex lives of people who uh, are living lives that seem very different from ours. And it seems to me there's almost no way to close that gap except by uh, talking about those people and listening to them and letting them speak for themselves. And since, you know, I have the we've lucked into this platform, my brother and I, um, you know, I, I guess we feel a responsibility to try to use it when possible. I mean, I, you know, I have little kids, so I, I, I try not to take more than, you know, one or two trips a year, but when possible to hear from those, hear from those people, hear directly from their, from their voices and also hear their stories in, in hopes of understanding it, because otherwise uh, it's easy to see people as statistics or it's easy to uh, see, understand people's, imagine people's lives very simplistically. And so, uh, you know, I think a big part of what we're trying to do in our online video work is, uh, you know, open up the world and we see that as part of it. And for listeners who may not be familiar, where can they right. find the videos? And the oh yeah, I make uh, I make videos at uh, YouTube.com/vlogbrothers. That's uh, yeah. And uh, we also have an educational video show called uh, Crash Course. <laughs> so, what do you How do you decide what to read and what not to read? I, I'm such a. That's a great question, and I'm so terrible at it. I just. <laughs> I almost only read what I am recommended by people. By whom? By who do you trust? trust? My wife. My wife reads so much. It's a. It's a humiliation <laughs> to have to live because you're married with to her. a nerd. Yeah, she's yeah. just so good at reading. <laughs> so yeah, Sarah recommends a lot of books to me, and then I, I mean, I guess through the ether. Um, and then there, at this point in my life, there are writers I really like. So I read, every, you know, like if Colson Whitehead has a new book out, like I, when that book came out, like it just came to my house, uh, and so I was like, I guess I should read this. Uh, yeah. So I guess it depends on the book, but mostly from recommendations, occasionally from book reviews. New York Times book review I read every week, so. Uh, we got to fly through a bunch of these. Okay, so sorry, let's I'll, go. I'll answer them fast. You're doing great. Um, how do you know when to stop trying to pursue something professionally, specifically within the arts? Like, where do you draw the line between following your dreams and then just being realistic? Uh, yeah, answer that quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I am a super 
like conservative realist person. Uh, I always wanted to work in a way, I've always wanted to work and write in a way that, um, that was sustainable, where I could take care of myself, and that it was possible to, I wanted it to be possible to write somehow, but to still, you know, like pay the rent and everything. And I, so I would just say, do both. Like William Carlos Williams being a doctor and a poet. Just do it all. <laughs> Just don't have a social life. There's a great uh, Kenneth Koch poem, You Want a Social Life with Friends, uh, and it's about how you can only have two of the three. You can have like a meaningful love life, a social life, or a life in the arts. You can have two. <laughs> it's a great poem. <laughs> I don't think it's true, but it's funny. You were talking about your writing process earlier. How much was it different when writing Will Grayson, Will Grayson? Oh, it was vastly different because it was so fun. Um, <laughs> so I wrote this novel, Will Grayson, Will Grayson, with my friend David Levithan, and we just wrote the chapters back and forth, and we had a blast. And it was super fun and funny and enjoyable. And, yeah, it was really... We just went back and forth. And then the editing is excruciating because I'm just... I'm, I, I'm a slow reviser. And, um, but that was, a little, that was a little bit harder just because I was so slow. But it was super fun. And I think, you know, David and I bounced ideas off of each other and bounced the story off of each other in ways that was... It was just incredibly enjoyable for us. So that was really... Uh, super fun experience. It must have been a faster process, too. It was. I mean, we wrote it over the course of two years, but we, I, yeah, I would write it uh, in bursts, and it was it was always fun to work on. Um, and then knowing that I was gonna, you know, get to read a new chapter from David was always exciting. His chapters in that book are so good. <laughs> Hi. Um, my question is, what is a book you read recently that had a big impact on you, and what made it so meaningful and impactful? Oh, I mean, this is a weird pick, but there's this book, I Contain Multitudes, by Ed Yong, that's about the uh, bacteria and viruses, and <laughs> it's fascinating. Huh. And if someday my new book comes out, uh, you'll be like, oh, he really liked that book. <laughs> <laughs> Um, how do you write something as like a gift to an audience without letting your uh, imagining of what their opinions on that will be like hinder the writing process? That's a great question. Um, right. I, I think that depends on the author. Some authors uh, like to imagine a, a, an audience or like to imagine a single person as an audience. When I start to do that is when I start to do what you mentioned, where I start to think about like, oh, they, they might hate this. They might, now they're going to hate me. Now they're going to hate this. They're going to... And then you just you get paralyzed, right? Because you can't write anything because somebody might dislike everything. Um, and uh, so I think of you very vaguely and facelessly uh, <laughs> you know, as a series of you know, spirits in the ether <laughs> rather than uh, having to think about you as a person not, not liking my work. <laughs> that makes sense. I'm sorry you don't like his work. <laughs> you didn't have to ask a question about it. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to like young writers and young people who feel the need that if, they don't, if they're not like writing right now, they won't get the chance later in life? 
Well, I mean, unless you, some people feel that way because they have uh, a chronic illness or because they, you know, are terminally ill, and, and that's a very specific experience. And if that's the experience, then it's different. If you f- feel that way, just just you feel it inside of you. Um, it's it's okay. Uh, it, it, you can keep going. Uh, and, and you also kind of don't know what the future holds. One of the weird things about the future is that it feels very. Um, uh, it always when I was when I was young and, and I looked at the future, I thought of adulthood as a kind of full stop. You know that like I was going to get to this thing called adulthood somewhere between like twenty and twenty four, and then there was going to be this period at the essentially the end of my life and then there was going to be this sort of extended period of stasis before death <laughs> and that, that checks out, out that turns out to have been, no it, it turns out to have been a bit of an oversimplification i think <laughs> and so um you don't i guess you don't know the opportunities that will come and so write and work and and enjoy the writing and enjoy the working but also have faith in the the, the future uh, what is the favorite book that you wrote? And please hyperbolize your answer. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. I think The Fault in Our Stars is not just my best book. <laughs> I can't say it. I can't say it. You know why I can't say it? I can't say it because there's a little piece of me that's worried that, like, I would read on Tumblr, like, this decontextualized quote where, like, can you believe what what he said? Uh, As someone who is a parent of two humans who will eventually be young adults, do you feel like that has affected uh, the way that you write to that audience? And if so, how? Huh, yeah, I mean, probably it's it's harder and harder, right, to go into that that headspace that I was in when I was 23, writing Looking for Alaska, where I didn't worry about, I wasn't worried about teenagers or 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 them being okay because I felt like you know I was in the trenches with them, uh, and I don't feel that way anymore. You know, I, I feel I feel conscious of the fact that I'm much older the relationship with my audience is very different much more uh, much more formal you know much more of an older person's relationship with younger people and um, I do think that's probably inevitably affected my writing I think parenthood is part of that but I also think just getting older is part of it but but on the other hand um, in a lot of ways it's opened me up to the idea that parents can be interesting characters in young adult novels which was not something that ever occurred to me until I was a parent (laughs) and I was suddenly like well these people are vastly underrated (laughs) (laughs) who will sing their praises (laughs) Um, so when I was a little kid I would like write stories a lot and I was really confident that they were just super awesome even though they were like terrible sure and like now that I'm confident that I'm a better writer I'm like crippled with self-doubt whenever I write and so like what makes it worth it for you like what propels you or helps you just like start the weird thing about being in my experience anyway one of the weird things about writing is that you go back and forth between these weird poles Writers a lot of times go back and forth between thinking, like secretly thinking, like I might be a genius, like an actual genius, and then thinking I'm the actual worst. (laughs) 
and there's never anything in the middle, right? Like it's yeah. like a it's like a like a seismograph or something. There's either an earthquake or there's not. Uh, the truth, of course, is in the middle. And you just have to tell yourself that, that like your brain is lying to you. It's very easy for me to tell myself that my brain is lying to me because it lies to me so much, but I know it's probably harder for other people, but your brain is just lying to you. <laughs> How do you know when a story is complete enough to show it to somebody? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's a great question. Well, you don't care about deadlines. Uh, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I guess it's when you've got the main character, um, you know, tied to the railroad tracks by her favorite author. <laughs> that's when you should probably share it. It's when you're so stuck inside of your head that you don't know that that's a bad idea. It's probably when you should share it. This question's for my sister who couldn't be here because she had to work. Um, what's your favorite snack to dr- eat with Diet Dr. Pepper? My favorite snack to eat with Diet Dr. Pepper, um, Snickers bars. I don't usually do this because I'm sure, I know your podcast has sponsors, but I just want to take a moment to thank my personal sponsor, the Mars Company, for sending me 478 Snickers bars a couple years ago. They've gotten more mileage out of those 470 Snickers bars. Anyway. Do you, um, listen, do you listen to music when you write? Yeah, sometimes, but only the mountain goats. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, is there a question that you've always wanted to be asked, but you never have? And if so, what's the answer to that? <laughs> sometimes I wish people would ask me, like... Um, like a leading question in a way I, I guess I, the answer is I don't know but I know that there is some question out there that like in answering it I would seem super smart and I feel like whenever I actually answer questions I always sound like such a doofus but I, sometimes I think maybe that's just because the questions aren't great you yeah know? that's probably it uh, yeah probably I'm not <laughs> sure but like that, it makes sense um, so yeah I, no I don't know that's such a doofus answer jeez <laughs> So this is a small thing, but durians smell very bad. So no, no, seriously, like be really careful where you eat this. Like don't okay. eat in your hotel room. Like go home. Like All know right. that what's gonna. Yeah, this smells good from a distance, so I, I'm yeah. not that worried just, about it. But I just want to make I'll sure. I'll check like, it out back at the I hotel room. Just got out of my. No, seat. do it in someone else's hotel thing. room. <laughs> like like oh, durian yeah. smell. There's a face really hugger bad. in there. <laughs> just. Be, I'm psyched. Be careful. Do you have a That's question? All. No, that was literally... All right, oh, it's just not the durians. All right, all right. I think we're good then. Is that it? Are we done? Is the last question? I have a real question. <laughs> so I was wondering if there's any difference in writing uh, narrative for fiction versus nonfiction. Well, I mean, I do write a lot of nonfiction in the sense that I read video scripts and, you know, like I just wrote, a, in a way, a 1,200-word essay on tax policy for the Vlogbrothers channel, but <laughs> thanks, I guess. Um, uh, I guess the, the difference is that when I'm writing nonfiction, it's almost always personal essays. It's almost always from my perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't really write journalism. Uh, I'm, 
extremely impressed with journalists, but in the way that I'm extremely impressed with like skateboarders. Like, I think what they do is amazing, but I have absolutely no aptitude for it, so I can only observe. Same way I feel about poetry, actually. Songwriting, lots of things. <laughs> Screenplays, comics, um, really most, most forms. Uh, sci-fi. <laughs> Long, uh, ongoing series like The Babysitter's Club or Sweet Valley High. This is a long list of things. But... Uh, so when I'm writing nonfiction, I feel like I'm trying to write from my perspective, which is not an uncomplicated thing because I'm trying to sort out what my perspective is, but it's not the same thing as, um, you know, trying to uh, give voice to someone else's story or something else. So when we do those videos where I am trying to give voice to someone else's story, I usually do it by just trying to let them talk uh, rather than trying to impose my own view on it. And then when I'm writing fiction, you know, it's, it's much more imaginative. Thanks. Um, I just have a couple of questions, then we'll, we'll wrap up. Wait, we have one more question. No one else sneak up. All right, this is, this the last, is, this is truly the last question. <laughs> All right, um, sorry. So, where do you, so in your books, uh, Paper Towns, uh, you use the R word, and you've apologized, but like in other, let me see if I can say this right without freaking out. Um, where do we draw the line from using discriminatory stuff and blaming the characters for it? And then, or versus like blaming the author for it, like this is wrong. That's a question. Right. I hope it makes sense. This is another place where like my unshakable beliefs have changed dramatically over the course of my career, right? Uh, so when I wrote Paper Towns, I thought my responsibility was to reflect teenage language as I saw it. Well, there's two problems with that. One, um, you know, teenage language as I saw it was as I saw it in 1993, uh, which maybe, who knows if that's really right. So why am I like hanging my hat on this uh, argument that is not particularly sound? And two, in a novel that's about trying to imagine others complexly, why would you use this very essentializing and objectifying language that's going to be hurtful for people? And so I guess to me that's the line uh, that I've come to is if this is going to be it's one thing if you're I guess it's one thing if you're writing about discrimination or you're writing about uh, some form of bigotry but uh, if you're not then uh, you know don't, why would you put people in that situation of, um, of making them feel less or making them feel essentialized by something that otherwise they, they would have liked and cared about it's just, it just uh, kind of excludes them from the experience of it and I, that's not something I want to do as a writer it's heartening to hear that as you evolve as a person you evolve as a writer and it makes me eager to read what you're going to do in 5 years in 10 years in 25 years I am also eager to <laughs> have written those books. Let me, <laughs> let me ask very quickly a couple things and we'll wrap up. Um, you have been a professional writer for some time. You've written uh, uh, your fair number of books already. Are there characters you would like to revisit? Yeah. I mean, well, there's characters I think about a lot. There are characters that I left behind in ways that I was totally satisfied with and characters I didn't. But I think ultimately... I don't want to revisit any of those old stories uh, because once I start to do that, it would be very difficult to get out of doing it. So I want to just 
I want to, I guess, move forward and see what I can write that isn't about any of, of those people, even in the cases where I do still think about them. So there is no, you know, 300 series Babysitter's Club style Probably not, no. I mean, you, I, I've learned to never say never, but it's hard to imagine, short of just running out of money, a situation in which I would write a sequel. <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and we'll just wrap up by asking you what you are, what are you getting excited about creatively lately? What books have you read? Uh, you mentioned a couple already. What movies have you seen? What television are you watching? Uh, anything that's inspiring or exciting you? I thought uh, The Get Down, the Netflix show, was amazing. I thought it was really beautiful. And uh, Justice Smith, who's in the Paper Towns movie, is just phenomenal in it, just amazing. Uh, and I, I like that sort of, I love the affected world of, of Baz Luhrmann stories, and I thought that was a really interesting place and time to set one of those stories. Uh, like everyone else on Earth, I really loved Stranger Things. I like The Americans a lot. Uh, it's a great show about, it's the best show about marriage uh, on TV, I think, but also it's about Soviet spies. <laughs> and... Uh, in terms of books, uh, I just read Jackie Woodson's new book that's been long listed for the National Book Award, and I thought it was just brilliant, just just wonderful. I thought uh, Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead was one of the best books I've read in years. Just just blew me away. Just if you haven't read that book, I really highly highly recommend it. Um, and uh, there was that book about uh, human microbiota that I enjoyed quite a lot by Ed Yong. <laughs> He's a really good science writer, and the world of the bacteria inside of your body is fascinating. <laughs> oh, boy, if you are not scared of being overwhelmed by the bacterial colony inside of you, you should really read this book. <laughs> Please give a round of applause to John Green, everyone. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for staying. Thank you, John. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 